Good morning again. Um, This morning's reading is from Jonah 3. And we will also be reading Jonah chapter 4 as well. Okay, Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way And God relented from the disaster that he had said. He would bring upon them that he said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Our Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah, Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, You have pity on the plant for which 
you have not laboured, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. Often when we mention Jonah of the Bible, the first thing that people mention is Jonah and the great fish. And the only reference about the prophet Jonah in the New Testament is certainly about Jonah being inside the great fish. In Matthew 12, in Matthew 16 and Luke 11, we can read the accounts of Jesus being asked to provide a sign. Those who asked him were looking for proof that his claims of being the Messiah were true. He said that the sign that he would give them was the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus' proof that he was the Messiah was that he would die, he would be buried and then he would rise again. And as we know, this is exactly what happened a short time later. Now, if you Google um, images of Jonah, you end up with a whole lot of pictures of a whale and a little bearded guy. And if you ask anyone about the book of Jonah, they'll mention that he was the guy who was swallowed by the fish. So the question is, is the great fish episode the most significant part of the book of Jonah? When we look at the book of Jonah itself, the the great fish is only mentioned in three verses. And it was appointed by God to rescue Jonah from certain death. A few weeks ago we looked at the many miracles that God performed within the four chapters of Jonah. And the great fish was only one of many miracles that occurred. These miracles showed us God's sovereignty over man and nature. So not only did God have authority over the great fish, he also had authority over the wind, authority over Jonah, the people of Nineveh, the plant and the worm. And he used all of these as agents to fulfil his purposes and plans. Arguably the great fish isn't the most significant of the miracles that took place. I would rank the, uh, the repentance and the turning of a whole city of people turning to God as one of the, the greatest miracles that took place in that account. These were wicked people who would have known little if anything about the Lord. So if the fish isn't the main part or character of the book of Jonah, then it must be Jonah himself. After all, he probably wrote this book and throughout it we read of his inner struggles with the mission that he had been given. We can also take a lot away from his experiences. However, despite all of this, Jonah does not play the main role in the book. Well, then maybe it's the people of Nineveh. Right from the get-go, God wants to send a message to them. And when Jonah takes a detour, God makes sure that he gets back on track and that he delivers God's message to them. Then when they hear the message, we see this incredible reaction taking place. Right from the king who leads the way to the least among them, they believed God. They then proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth. 
And the king put out a proclamation that everyone must cry mightily to God and turn from their evil way. And we see that God relented and this generation of Nineveh spent an, will spend an eternity with God. They were saved and it's an awesome thing that happened. However, the people of Nineveh did not play the main role of Jonah. The main character of Jonah is, of course, God. In fact, we could say that about all the books of the Bible. If we want to know God and about God, this is where we turn to. Of course, people feature throughout Scripture and we can take an interest in them. We can learn a lot from their character. We can learn a lot from their interactions with God and we can learn a lot with their interactions with the world around them. They can set examples for us. Now, some of these examples are good examples that we can admire and attain to and some of the examples that they set aren't so good and these are things that we can contemplate and learn from. And the beauty of it is that we can usually see these people warts and all. These are real people facing real situations and interacting with the real God. The heroes aren't always heroic and the villains aren't always beyond hope. It is God who is the centre of the Bible and we come to know him better through scripture and we can react accordingly. When reading the book of Jonah, there are two major themes that teach us something about the character and nature of God. The first is that God is sovereign and we talked about this in depth a few weeks ago. God has authority over everything. He's the master of the universe. His purposes and plans will come to pass. And the questions for us in regard to God's sovereignty are, do we recognise that God is sovereign in our lives? How do we respond to the will of God? Do we obey or do we run and hide? Now the second major theme of Jonah is God's mercy to all nations. And we clearly see in Jonah that God has a heart towards the people of Nineveh. This is a heathen city comprised of people who are not Jewish, who are evil and have little regard for the Lord. And this morning we're going to look deeper into this aspect of God's nature. We will then move on to our application, which is the content of God's message and how that same message is relevant to the world today. We will look at the fact that if there is a message, then there needs to be a messenger. So Jonah was God's appointed messenger of the day. And guess who God's messengers are now? Okay, so looking at God's, the characteristic of God's mercy to all nations. Right back near the beginning of, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abram. And in fact, he makes seven promises in one. So reading from Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country. When I was reading this, it sort of reminded me a little bit of um, statements that I make in my house, except it's not get out of your country, it's uh, get out of your bed. And then as I read through a little bit further, I thought, hey, this is a great scripture for those teenagers who haven't quite flown the coop yet, but should. Get out of your bed, from your family and from your father's house. 
That's not a hint to any teenagers in my house. Okay? Okay, getting back to Abram. This is what he actually said to Abram. Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. That was the first promise. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised that he would make Abram into a great nation. And he did, the nation of Israel. He said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The NIV study Bible puts it this way. God's original blessing on all mankind would be restored and fulfilled through Abram and his offspring. And we see this promise has unfolded throughout all of scripture and throughout history. Through Abram, through the nation of Israel, through Jesus and through the church. The point is, is that we see God's heart is towards all the families of the earth right from the time of Abram. The Israelites were to be a great nation that would be blessed and also be a blessing. Now Russ Reeves, he's a um, Bible commentator, he states this, that God has always had a desire to extend his truth and grace beyond Israel to the rest of the world. And it's also interesting to note that later on God changed Abram's name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And as we look through scripture, we find the characteristic of God's mercy in throughout the whole, whole of scripture. Looking at Exodus 34, 34 verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And also if we look in Psalm 86, there's a couple of verses there that relate to God's mercy and grace. Uh, Verse 5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. And then further down in verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And also if we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-4, to For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Now, the account of Jonah also demonstrates God's mercy towards all nations. And the beauty of Jonah is is that we don't just read about the fact that God is merciful and gracious. We see it happening. We see it in action. This is a working example of God's mercy. And the other interesting thing that happened at Nineveh is that these people were far from what Jonah would consider to be people who were deserving of God's grace. In Jonah's mind, these people were beyond redemption. They didn't deserve it. You see, Nineveh was an Assyrian city. The Assyrians were enemies of Israel, but not only that, 
they were also a very brutal people. Some of the things that their military did were just too barbaric to mention. But to give us some idea, I have a quote from an historian. And um, of course, being a historian, she has quite a um, hard name to pronounce. It's Erica Bladetro. Okay, and this is what she says. She says that Assyrian national history, as it has been preserved for us in inscriptions and pictures, consists almost solely of military campaigns and battles. So most of the the written history we have of Assyria involves their warfare. She goes on to say, It is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. So the Assyrian people were right up there on the nasty scale. So when we look at Nineveh, we have a city whose people were not Jewish and who weren't very nice people at all. But God wanted to show them mercy. Why would he want to do that? It's something that can be hard for us to understand and Jonah certainly couldn't get a grip on it. And what about us? Are there people who we think are beyond redemption? Sometimes from our perspective, we don't understand why God shows grace to certain individuals, why he blesses certain people. It's like we're saying, if it was up to me and I was running the show, there is no way that person would be showing any grace. When we look at the last few verses of Jonah 4, we get some idea of where God was coming from. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? John MacArthur puts it like this. God has the divine right to exercise compassion on the many thousands in Nineveh who were ignorant of their own condition. God is sovereign and God is gracious. He has the divine right to exercise compassion on whomever he chooses. Jonah enjoyed and rejoiced in God's blessing and mercies towards his own country, but he wanted God's wrath to be poured out onto the enemies of Israel. It's like he had forgotten that God had shown Israel and himself grace and mercy. When we think that a certain person or a group of people are beyond redemption or that they're not even worthy of it, then we too forget the grace that God has shown to us. Do you remember Dave's letter from the other week? It was like a scale of goodness. God was right up at the top and a little bit below that we had Mother Teresa. Then behind Mother Teresa was Billy Graham and very, very slightly behind Billy Graham was Dave Tassard. And miles away, right at the bottom, there was bad people such as serial killers. Now we tend to scale ourselves in relation with other people. And because we are not as bad as some people are, then we come out with statements like what Dave did in relation to his letter illustration. Thanks, but I'm fine as I am. I don't need God. The problem though, is that it doesn't matter where you are on that scale, 
there is still a gap between you and God. And because of this, a good person who is not living in the grace of God is no better off than a bad person who is not living in the grace of God. In the end, it doesn't matter where you are on the scale of goodness, if you are without God, the outcome is the same. And what's really not fair is that if a bad person receives the grace of God, then they will leapfrog all the good people to the top of the scale. A bad person who has received the grace of God is far better off than a good person who has not received the grace of God. Last week we sang a song. It's called, it was called It's Your Grace and it was based on Romans 9 to 11. And this song fits in well with what we're talking about this morning. So I thought we'll read through it. Now I'm going to show you all a little bit of grace by not singing it to you. And notice as we go through it that I've highlighted all the references to God which highlights what he has done. It's your grace. You will save whom you will save. We're the lost and helpless ones, the rebels and the renegades who spurned your holy love. You will save whom you will save. Mercy will be magnified. Everyone has gone astray and followed after lies. But you have loved us and opened our eyes. You will save whom you will save. We were captive to our wills and if our hearts had not been changed we'd flee your mercy still. You will save whom you will save. Who can question what you do? You're the potter. I knew I was going to do that. You're the plotter. You're the potter. We're the clay. You can make us as you choose. And there is no one who boasts before you. You will save whom you will save, yet the promised hope remains. You will rescue anyone who calls upon your name. You will save whom you will save, faithful love won't be denied. Christ has overcome the grave and for our sins he died. And he comes back and when he comes back his glory will shine. And the chorus just sums it up really well. It's your grace from beginning to the end. It's your grace we will never comprehend. Why you drew the ones who ran from you, what can we do but offer you praise? We should be forever thankful for God's grace in our life and we should never begrudge or deny God showing grace to someone else. Another aspect of God's sovereignty and mercy is how he will relent on a promised outpouring of his wrath when someone or a group of people or in the case of Jonah, a nation repents. God sent Jonah to preach a message of impending doom to the city of Nineveh. Now one of the criticisms of Jonah is that God proclaimed through Jonah that the city of Nineveh would be destroyed within 40 days. But it didn't happen. What was prophesied did not come to pass. And surely if this is an unchanging God, he would have delivered on his word. But when we look through scripture, we find that this isn't out of step with God's character. It's part of his grace. Jonah recognised this right from the get-go. This is what he said after 
the people of Nineveh had repented. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That is one of the reasons why he tried to run away. He understood God's mercy, he didn't like Assyrians and he didn't want to have any part of them experiencing God's grace. We can read about God relenting from carrying out his pre-announced plans in Jeremiah 18 and reading from verse 7 and notice the word if there has been highlighted. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. And again referring to the NIV study Bible in relation to this verse, this is what they say. God's promises and threats are conditioned on man's actions. God who himself does not change nevertheless will change his pre-announced response to a man depending on what the latter does to man. Okay, so just a little bit extra that I found in Jeremiah 18. I was reading down a little bit further so I'll just get a little bit extra here for no extra cost. Um, While I was reading through Jeremiah 18 it's interesting to note um, further down that the people of Jerusalem and Judah received a message similar to that of which the people of Nineveh did. However, the response was quite different. So reading from verse 11 in Jeremiah 18. This is God speaking to, to Jeremiah. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem. Say to them, this is what the Lord says, I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. But the people replied, Don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want to, stubbornly following our own evil desires. It's the same God, the same message. We had a couple of different uh, messengers. So we had Jonah the disobedient prophet, who was the messenger to Nineveh, And Jeremiah, who's considered one of the great prophets, was the messenger to Judah. The response, though, is completely contrasting. Nineveh repented and the people of Judah refused to listen. Okay, let's go on and look at God's grace to all people. The grace of God extends past nations and through to individuals. God desires that all mankind turn from their wicked ways and turn to him. This is demonstrated throughout scripture and we're going to look at some of these um, verses now. 1 Timothy 4 For to this end we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the saviour of all men, especially of those who believe. And then if we go back a couple of chapters to 1 Timothy 2 For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour 
who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And also in Corinthians, and again this is Paul writing, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So it's interesting to note there that um, in that the last part of that verse is our response to God. He's saying that he died for us, but we should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. Now because it is part of God's character to see all come to salvation, then it makes sense that we should also desire to see others come into God's salvation. The two points of application this morning are the message and the messenger. First of all, the message. And this is God's message to those who are outside of his grace. Um, We refer to it as the gospel. Then the messenger or messengers. We should be serving God and others by taking the gospel to the last. Now in recent times, we have adequately covered both of these applications. So today I simply hope to encourage you once again into action regarding these two things. First of all, we'll look at the message. We often call God's message to this world the good news, but the gospel message actually contains an element of bad news within it. Jonah's message to the Ninevites was a bit of a the end is nigh message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's not exactly good news, is it? If anyone has not received the grace of God, they are in the same predicament as the people of Nineveh, except for maybe the 40 days thing. Uh, Generally, we don't know how much time we have between now and when our goose is cooked. So, just, yeah. But other than the time frame thing, the outcome is the same. Here's what scripture says. If we look at Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And then the bad news just keeps on coming. Hebrews 9.27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So not only do you live, then you die, you face judgment. And if you haven't responded in a way similar to that the people of Nineveh did, then the prognosis is not good. But we've just been talking about God's grace and his mercy, about how he is gracious and merciful to all nations and to all people. And he is that, and that's where the good news comes into play. So if we go back to Romans 6.23, we'll read the full verse and what it says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And also the full message of Hebrews 9.27 extends through to verse 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once, 
But after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And of course, when we're talking about the gospel and God's grace and God's mercy, we can't go past John chapter 3. So we're just going to pick that up in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The message, even though it has an element of bad news, is overall good news. It is the most important message there is. It needs to be taken seriously and it requires a response. We earlier saw the two contrasting responses to the message of God. You can either accept the gospel, repent and turn to God and live in his grace or you can reject the gospel and carry on at your own risk. As people who have heeded the message, we should first of all be praising God that he has shown us his mercy and grace. But not only that, we should desire as God desires to see that others come to the knowledge of his mercy and grace. Excuse me, I'll just take a little bit of this. In recent times, we as a church have been focusing on what the gospel message is and how to go about sharing it. We have the knowledge of the gospel. The question is, what do we do with that knowledge and what does our attitude towards it say about us? Here is a quote from Bernard of Clairvaux. Some seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is curiosity. Some seek knowledge to be known by others, that is vanity. Some seek knowledge to serve, that is love. God's word is not given to us for our curiosity or to satisfy our vanity. It is given to us for our transformation. But more than that, it is given to us so that we are enabled to serve. We should be seeking to see that others are also transformed. We serve a gracious and merciful God. Are you ready? Last week, Calphane shared with us the message of being ready. This applies both to the message of God's grace and being a faithful servant. Be ready, for you do not know the hour that the Master will return. We don't know when the Lord will return, either in the second coming or if he will call us home earlier than that. Now, almost two years ago, on an ordinary Tuesday, I received a phone call from my brother and he was calling me to tell me that my sister had passed away. Um, Earlier that morning, it was like life as usual, but by late morning, she was gone. Her passing was sudden and it was totally unexpected. Sometimes these things happen. But our God is a gracious and merciful God. As far as the message was concerned, my sister was ready. 
She had received God's grace. Some faithful servant had shared it with her. But not only that, there were several people that had walked with her as she worked through her salvation. Now as far as being a faithful servant herself, I believe and trust that she was ready in that sense too. I don't know for sure, but from what I had seen and heard, she was serving God faithfully. Our God is a God of grace and mercy. Have you received that grace? Are you living it? If you have, are you faithfully serving God? Are you sharing it with others? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we just come before you and Lord, we just recognise you as a gracious and merciful God. Lord, you have shown us grace and mercy in our own lives and Lord, you have shown it to us as a, as a people who are united in your name. And Lord, we just thank you that you have sent your Son to die for us, Lord, so that we can live in that grace and mercy and live a life, um, a life that is dedicated to you, Lord. Lord, just as we contemplate the things that you have shared with us this morning, Lord, we just pray that we can look within ourselves and Lord, just uh, work through those things with you. Jesus' name, Amen. Can we have the musicians, please?